for a lot of the summer moving forward, we're going to be going through and looking at the Gospel of Luke. Now, this is a great gospel for any of us who are looking to, uh, to get a richer and deeper relationship with God and are looking to grow in faith. I highly recommend working through the gospel of Luke. This gospel is rich with parables, with miracles, with encounters and events of Jesus' life, and was written at the time towards those who did not grow up in a Jewish setting, which makes this gospel very accessible to us as modern readers. And throughout this Gospel of Luke, we can learn to read and to pray with the life of Jesus. And I love that idea. As you're approaching Scripture, you're reading it and praying it at the same time as you are looking at the life of Jesus. It allows you to take his life and bring it into the center of our lives, make our lives focus on him. See, we have scripture to read and to pray as we are to walk with Jesus. Just as he has gone to the cross for us by his word, he comes to us and walks with us. And we can, in a very real way, when we do this through prayer and reading of with Jesus in his word, have our eyes, have our hearts opened up to the victory that Christ Jesus has won for each one of us, can actually begin to see his victory redeeming and bringing restoration all around us despite of what we might hear. We are allowing him through his word to show us that victory because in the word he's directing our eyes back onto him rather than on the things of this world and all the things that vie for our attention. So it is my hope as we go through the text today that you see how important it is to have this word of God, to meditate on it, to contemplate it, to cherish it, and hold it very, very close. For it is in the word of God that the Father lovingly comes to meet us, his children, to talk with us. And such is the force and the power of the word of God, that it can even serve the church as our support, as our life, right? For the word of the Lord gives us strength. It gives us food for our soul. And the word of God is the pure and lasting fount of spiritual life. Here's what I mean by that. The word of God gives you strength for each day. Friends, some of the best metaphors of God describe him as a rock, a fortress, a tower, a shield. See, the psalms, they, were all, they knew all about what it meant to be bombarded with the news of doom, with seeds of distrust being sown, of waves of sorrow, of the endless attacks of the evil one, the reminder that each breath that we take is the draining sand of our numbered days. Strength is the only answer to that. Not our own strength, but on the one who reminds us, right, who comes and says, take heart, I have overcome the world. The Lord's strength does not waver or tire. And he gives it, bye baby, gives it to you. See, scripture gives us strength and it's also that food for the soul. It is here in the word that God gives us exactly what we need. 
Not what we think we're supposed to hear or some quick fix or a temporary shot or just a passing phase, but the grace of God and his gospel takes barren souls and grows this garden in its place. One of my favorite visions in all of the Bible happens in Ezekiel chapter 37, where this prophet sees a river flowing through a barren place and it has only one destination. This river is making its way to the Dead Sea where the salt is so much that nothing grows in it, where everything there is dead. But when this river, this flowing river reaches it, it turns that dead sea into a living place with fish and trees and life. And that, friends, is Christ Jesus coming to you through the word right to your heart. Because scripture is strong. It's the food, the necessity for our soul. And it's pure and it lasts. The word of God is unmixed. There is no bias there, no hidden agenda, no attempt at manipulating or using you. There is simply truth, real truth, where you will find and experience real love in Jesus Christ. It is the word of God that roots us. So in an ever-changing climate and landscape, we will always remain in Christ. So it is no wonder we cry out, tear down this man-made house that I have and put me on your rock, O Lord. Root me to you. And we got to get into that word. So let's pull out our Bibles, friends. We're going to dive throughout this gospel. Today, specifically, we're picking up right in the middle of chapter 8. Now, the, the verse is right there on the back of the uh, uh, order of service that you got. It'll also appear here. But I'm telling you, these next couple of weeks are a great time to start bringing your Bibles and making tiny little notes in the margins and things, circling the verses, the words that you like, reminding yourself to go back and look at some other stuff as well. I'm going to read through the whole text today first, and then I'm going to start to break it down. So this is John, uh, sorry, this is Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 60 or 26. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town, and for a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. 
And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Verse 26, we see that since it's the herding of pigs here, which were considered an unclean animal for Jews, this is an indicator that Jesus is in a Gentile area known as Samaria rather than a Jewish one. In the beginning of this Gospel of Luke, we see that Gentiles may have previously gone to Jesus in Galilee, but here it's Jesus who's going out to those who are not Jews. In fact, from here in Luke chapter 8 all the way through, I think, Luke chapter 18, he's going to be preaching and teaching in this region of Samaria. When the text continues here in verses 27 to 29, Luke is describing this terrible situation of one man. Now, you may have noticed that the man doesn't wear clothes. He doesn't live in a house. He's isolated from others. He's driven about by the demons to these deserted places. He can even break the chains when people try to chain him up and keep him one place so he won't harm anyone or himself. But here he is right now, they even say, living in the tombs, which according to Numbers 19 is a very unclean place. Nevertheless, Jesus goes to this unclean, unwell man. And you see what the demons cry out, just like in Luke chapter 4 earlier, they perceive Jesus' identity of the Son of the Most High Guy, and they say, what do you want with us, Son of the Most High God? Side note, and this is if you have your Bible, you could totally write this down and check it out later. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and his companions are going to be addressed very similarly by a demon-possessed girl who calls them slaves of the Most High God. And interestingly enough, the ending is going to be the exact same, but that's skipping ahead. Now here in 30 and 33, when Jesus says, what's your name? The reply is legion. Where's my Caesar 3 fans? Does anyone know what Caesar 3 is? Of course you don't. You weren't nerds like me growing up. Caesar 3 was a computer, well, my dad is, nice, <laughs> was a computer building game where you got to grow your own empire in Rome. <sighs> so much fun. You can actually still play it on Steam. I think I saw it for 99 cents. Now, legion is a military Latin word. And if we're to take the word at its literal meaning, it would be indicating a possession here of several thousand demons which is a few more than the seven that he cast out of Mary Magdalene a little bit earlier in the chapter. And what do we see? But the demons are trying to pawn star Jesus here to bargain with him to not be sent into the abyss, literally the bottomless place, which we can understand is their place of confinement that will come at the end that's described in Revelation 20 and is throughout the Old Testament always associated with deep waters. And we see that Jesus allows this legion to enter a herd of many pigs. And when the demons go into the pigs, they rush down the hill into the water and they drown. Despite their attempts to negotiate, the demons still end up in the watery abyss. Now, I mentioned that Luke was written to a more non-Jewish audience. Now, just in case we're not familiar with the Old Testament, there's a very interesting picture 
that we could contemplate and keep in our mind when hearing this story. See, when the Israelites left Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind and he began to pursue them. And so there's this crazy moment where the Israelites look up and on one side is this giant sea and on the other is the entire army of Pharaoh rushing at them. And God parts the sea and the people, the Israelites, walk across on dry ground and are saved. But when Pharaoh and his army try to pursue them through the water, the sea closes up and they are destroyed in the abyss. See, in a very similar way here, we are seeing Jesus bringing salvation to his people in a different way of crossing the sea, specifically for this one man. But the result to the enemy is always the same, brought to destruction. Because you know as well as I do that Jesus brings liberty to those who are captive, set free, amen, so that they may turn from darkness to light, so that they may be freed from the power of Satan and to experience and know the power of God. And I wonder where you find yourself captive today. Is it a legion that seems to be against you? A legion that would overwhelm you? A legion of problems? A legion of terrors? Of fears? A legion of addictions? A past full of regret and shame? For it is our sin and the brokenness of this world that drives each one of us to isolation. We find each one of ourselves unclean, find each one of ourselves lost and hurting. Because the truth and reality of sin is that it brings devastation to ourselves and to those around us. And I think about this man in our text today. He wasn't seeking out Jesus. We don't see him bargain or beg, or try to pay. At meeting Jesus, he falls to his knees and cries out. But friends, it's not important what the man does. He said, look what Jesus does. Jesus comes to him. Jesus meets him on the shore in a very place that you would never expect Jesus to come to. Samaria, unclean. Jesus is there. And I tell you the truth. Jesus comes to you. He is not sitting back waiting for you to get it together to take the first step in coming to you. The eyes of Jesus meet you and see you. Those loving eyes. Eyes that never look on you in condemnation when you are broken. Eyes that don't look at you in disgust or disappointment, but eyes that see you with love. Eyes that see you and change you like they did Matthew, the tax collector, right? When he looked at him and he said, get up and follow me. Left behind the life. Eyes that when he saw Nathaniel, and said, I saw you sitting under a fig tree, changed Nathaniel so much that he cried out, my Lord and my God. The eyes of Jesus see you and look past all that you have done or anything that you would do 
see you and in his voice says, you are mine, I love you, I heal you, I redeem you. That, friends, is what it's like when we sing, hope fall down like rain. When we cry out about love that we just can't explain, a peace that stills our soul and brings light no matter how dark it gets. We gather to sing praise for what he has done to us, what he continues to promise to do for each one of us. Meet us and bring healing and salvation. But the text takes a weird turn here in verse 34 because when those tending the pigs go and get the people, well, in the aftermath, the entire population are seized with, with fear and they say, leave, get out of here. They see the man, one of their own, probably had family in that crowd that had gathered, see him restored, not naked now, but clothed. Not possessed, but in his right man. Not wandering around, but sitting at the feet of Jesus. A man truly set free. They see him healed, and they ask Jesus to go. Because the restoration of one of their own was not as important as the economic loss of a few pigs. They chose their own livelihood over the power of God that would come into their lives. They chose money over a person, profit. They chose to look out for themselves rather than rejoice and participate in the restoration. None of us would argue that the man wasn't possessed, but the man was healed. Though it would seem to me that the people had a different kind of demon possessing them one that is very much still alive and around today. See, Jesus comes to each one of us to bring his healing, his truth, his salvation. But if we say, I don't want that, Jesus, I don't need you, Jesus, leave. Well, friends, the text is clear. He does. And when Jesus gets back in that boat, it's the man begging there in verses 38 and 39 to go with Jesus. And then something profound happens. Jesus tells him to return home. Jesus restores him to his family, to his community, and says, go and tell what? You see it? Go and tell how much God has done for you. And I don't know if you caught this, but instead, what does he do? He goes away and tells over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Since for him, Jesus does the work of God. For him, Jesus is God. Now, we understand that as readers. Jesus is the Son of God. This is no big thing, right? Three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God in one, three persons. But at the time, friends, this man becomes the very first to proclaim Jesus. John the Baptist will say, make the way. Jesus will proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. The 72 are going to be sent out right after this. But this man, a Gentile, one who has experienced freedom. One who, when Jesus met him, was wrecked and broken, and yet Jesus brought forgiveness, healing, and made him whole. Will go out to proclaim Christ. Will be the very first missionary. 
bringing the good news of Jesus to others. And what is a missionary of Jesus if not one who would continue the pattern that Jesus does? This man will go to his people, to his community, to his family, and will bring Jesus. What Jesus has done, how Jesus heals, the power of Jesus proclaimed, the love of Jesus known. I pray, I pray that you will be filled with his Holy Spirit, that you will not be afraid to proclaim the love of Jesus, but rather since each one of us has experienced healing, each one of us been freed from the shackles of sin, each one of us gone through trials and temptations, yet the love of God remains steadfast and true, will leave and proclaim Jesus. I will not invite people, but will bring them to Jesus. That, that is truly powerful.